Amen. Come on, you can do better than that. All those people said? Amen. 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 All right, all right, all right. So here's, here's a quick question. Have you ever been hungry? Yes. You ever been thirsty? Yes. So like my kids will say, Daddy, I'm starving. And I'm like, you're not starving. You ate two hours ago. Or my kids will say, oh, I'm so parched. No, no, you just want to drink soda. You're not really thirsty. You're not really hungry. And so one of the things that I want us to make sure that we understand is that when Jesus is talking about thirst and hunger, he's not talking about thirst and hunger in the sense that, ah, I haven't eaten in a little bit or I'm a little bit thirsty. In fact, there's a thing that's kind of in vogue now that's called intermittent fasting. Have you ever heard of it or tried it? Intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is a really interesting thing. And what happens is when you don't eat for a period of time, your body produces this substance called ketones. And you get into this sort of ketogenic state, which means that your body, since it doesn't have enough sugar to be able to produce energy, it goes and starts burning up your fat and uses that uh, source of energy to be able to uh, move forward. And it's really interesting because when you're uh, in a state of ketosis, what happens is you have three things. One is you have... a big boost of energy. Number two, you have more focus. And then number three, you're kind of a little bit more aggressive. Have you ever felt like a little more aggressive when you're hungry? So this is part of what happens. And one of the reasons for this, some people believe, is that when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, and we would be hungry and we'd have to go hunt, there's this certain thing that, that God gave us to be able to give us the energy so when we're hungry, we're more focused because we have to hunt. We have more energy because we need this energy to be able to hunt. And we're a little bit more aggressive because we have to go after these goals so that we can eat. Now, if one day goes by, you're hungry. If two days go by, you're very hungry. If three days go by, you will do anything to find food. So when we think about Christ and when he's talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this is the image that we need to have in our mind. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. In other words, I will do anything possible to be able to find righteousness because I hunger and I thirst for it. And so as I was preparing this message, I just have to be completely honest with you is I had to ask myself this question. I'm like, Josh, what do you hunger for? And I'm like, righteousness. Because I'm a pastor and I have to seek righteousness, right? And I started thinking about it and, and trying to be as honest as possible with myself. And I thought about my mom. And I know that's weird. We're like, well, that's kind of weird. You just thought about your mom. Well, the reason why I thought about my mom is because when I was in college, I did, I did my own thing in college and I made a bunch of mistakes. And my mom probably knew me better than anyone else. And so I would come and visit uh, once in a while home and my mom would ask me how are you doing or how are things going and I would be like great I'd talk about my grades and talk about my friends and all that kind of stuff and then my mom would pause and she would look at me and she would say Josh she would look at me in my eyes and she would say how are you doing really and I know what she meant I'm like what do you know you know I got all nervous because, because she knew me so well that she knew when something was going on. And so the reason why, why I was thinking about that and the reason why I bring this into this moment right now is that I had to be in this honest moment as I was preparing this sermon saying, what do I hunger and thirst for really? I don't even know if, if righteousness is on my list. Like I try to do things right. I try to do the right thing. I try to be a good person. But do I honestly hunger and thirst? Like, will I do anything in my power to be righteous? 
Now, what does that even mean? Like, what, is it, what, is it, what does it even mean to be righteous? And why, why should we seek righteousness? Matthew 5, 6, we just, we just read, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So what do you hunger for? What do I hunger for? We all hunger for something. What is it? Is righteousness on your list? So, as we think about that, you may ask yourself, why should I even seek righteousness if Christ already made us righteous through him? We've been talking about this in the past few weeks also, about this whole idea that that we've received Christ's righteousness as a result of his sacrifice for us. Romans 3.10 says this. It says, as it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. And then Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags, and we all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So, so why should we seek righteousness if we can't even produce righteousness? Why even try Because there's nothing righteous in us, and even the things that we try to do right, we're always going to fall short. So why should we hunger and seek for righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him, his son Jesus, who had no sin, to be sent for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus dies on the cross, and he bestows upon us his righteousness. So now we become righteous, not because of ourselves, but because God sees us through Christ. So we are righteous before him. We talked in the past about the fact that we're spiritually bankrupt, like we have nothing to offer God. So we may conclude, why even try? Why should we even make it our goal to hunger and thirst for righteousness if through Christ we have already been made righteousness, why follow any rules? If Jesus already did everything for us, isn't that what it means when Jesus is on the cross and he dies for our sins and he says it is finished? Does that mean that we no longer have to follow any rules? Because all the rules and the regulations from the Old Testament are obsolete. We don't need to follow those anymore. Now we can live in absolute freedom from the law because Jesus came to abolish the law, right? Are you sure? 100%? Let's see what the Bible says. It sounds good though, you know, but it's not. It's not what the Bible says. Matthew 5.17 says this. It says the exact opposite. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill. Now, what does this mean? And I hope this isn't confusing because sometimes we can misunderstand this scripture into meaning no more laws. Now we can live in absolute freedom. I can do whatever I want because Jesus already paid the price. So he comes into the world. He lives a perfect life. He dies. He resurrects on the third day so that now I can have freedom from the law and now I can do whatever I want. Right? No, because he came to what? To abolish the law or to fulfill it? Fulfill it. And there's a big difference, brothers and sisters, between abolishing something and fulfilling something. So let me give you this example, and it's not a perfect example, but this is how I understand it. If you have a cup right here, you have a cup, and that cup is empty, and you break the cup, 
into a thousand pieces and then you throw it away. That cup has been abolished. There's no use for the cup anymore. That cup is obsolete. Now, if you have an empty cup and you fill that cup up with some beautiful coffee and you drink that coffee, all of a sudden that cup has been fulfilled and it is serving its purpose. And so what happens with the law, when Jesus talks about fulfilling the law, he's talking about this whole idea that, that back in the Old Testament, these laws were guilt-driven. And all of a sudden, now Jesus comes and he fulfills the law, meaning now I understand why I do these things because they have been fulfilled with a purpose. They are no longer empty. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. No longer guilt-driven. There's something else that's fulfilling the law. So Jesus comes to fulfill it, but what does he fulfill it with? Is a good question, I think. As Matthew 22 says this, um, teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and says this, teacher, what's the greatest law? What is the, what is the, what, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right? Jesus, Jesus could have easily said, no, no, no. You see, no more law. We just do whatever we want now. No. What does, he say? what does he say? He says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Number two, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So now the laws have been fulfilled. So this cup is full. Like there's a reason for the law. Now what's the reason for the law? What has it been fulfilled with? What is it full of? What is the reason behind Seeking righteousness. What is the motor behind what we do? It's one word. It's love. It's love. In fact, Jesus came up with the 11th commandment. Did you know that? It says this. I know it sounds like heresy, but it's not. John 13, 34 says, Jesus says, a new commandment, a new one, I give you. What is it? Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that if, if anything that you do is motivated by anything other than love, that's useless. It's empty. It's noise. It's like a symbol that you can just, you can't keep, keep hearing that anymore. Everything needs to be motivated by Love. All right? So what has the law been fulfilled with? Love. Now we know why we do what we do. Now here's the thing, here's the part where I think sometimes we get it wrong, is that we think that love is a not stronger motivator than guilt. Here's where we get it wrong. We assume that the motivator, since the motivator is now love, that we crank down everything sort of a notch. Like now it's all happy and it's all flowers and it's all just love. And love is free. And now we don't have to do the law so much or we do it a little bit, but it's all love. So it's all happy and roses. Now we can relax. But if you look at history, you realize that the exact opposite thing is what happened. You see, the pursuit of righteousness got cranked up to 11. They had the law before. Now the law had been fulfilled. And then the thirst and hunger for for righteousness didn't go down, it got cranked up to 11. Because now we had a much stronger motivator, which was love. And if you think that the Pharisees sort of overdid it, like the Pharisees, oh, they were just all about the law. You think that they overdid it, like they were doing too much, and now we have a motivator, which is love, which now we can relax. Let's think about what Jesus told them in Matthew 5.20. It says this, 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees were here, and then he goes, okay, now we got a stronger motivator, and then it all gets cranked up a notch, up to 11. And Jesus starts clarifying. He says, you have heard it said, right? So guilt before, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. That's guilt-driven. So I'm not going to murder because the law says that I won't have to. And now he cranks it up a notch since we have love as a motivator. And he says that even if you call your brother or your sister an insult, then you have already murdered in your heart. So love cranks it up a notch. Up to 11, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, and you would not commit adultery as a result of guilt. Like, ah, the law says I can't do it, so I can't do it. And then we get love now, and it all gets cranked up to 11. Now we have this motivator, which is love, and it says that even if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. You see, the thing that we don't understand sometimes is that we assume that, it, it, that love is a not as strong motivator as guilt. And now I'm going to talk about something that's going to make a lot of you uncomfortable, and it's the tithe. This is not a sermon about the tithe, but this is what I believe, we believe about the tithe. You see, the tithe is 10% of your income. And I'm talking about the difference between love and guilt. I don't want anyone to give tithe or offering as a result of guilt. We don't want that. Let me just make that clear. But Malachi chapter 3, this is the Old Testament, says that if you don't give God 10% of your income, that you are robbing God. And you may say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. And there's this assumption that since that's the Old Testament, that that no longer applies to us now. But Jesus himself, we just read it, says that the law, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it, which means that now we keep on giving, but not as a result of guilt, but as a result of love. That's why 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not, reluct, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, not out of guilt, out of love. So it's fulfilled. So now we know why we give, not out of guilt, but out of love. This is why Jesus also tells the Pharisees when he's talking about the tithe in Matthew 23, 23, he says this, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, referring to the tithe, without neglecting the former. He was talking about love. He's saying, yes, continue giving the tithe. But now you have to understand that I don't need your money. What I need is your heart. It's the most important thing. So you can, and you can see the difference between the giving in the Old Testament and the giving in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was an obligation to give because it was guilt-driven. And it was all the offerings and the free will offerings, the first fruits, etc., which added up to much more than 10%. But then you look at the New Testament, which the law had already been fulfilled, and you realize that they didn't give the 10% or 17% or whatever. They gave everything. Because love cranks everything up to 11. That's what I say sometimes when people say, I don't believe in the Old Testament tithing because we're in the New Testament. I'm like, okay, I'm not there yet. Like, I don't know if I can give everything, but I think that this is why we talk about 10% being a good starting point. Because love ramps everything up to 11. 
Now, this sermon is not about a tithe, but what the point that I'm trying to make here is that love is a much more, much stronger motivator than guilt. Now, here's the thing. This seems counterintuitive because, because when we talk about the law and we talk about following the law and doing what the law says, there's this assumption that it's going to make us miserable and we want freedom. I want to be free. I don't want to be tied to anything. But here's what God wants for you. John 10.10 says this. It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God wants us to have a life that is fulfilling. He wants us to be fulfilled in the same way that he fulfilled the law with love. He wants our lives to be fulfilled. He doesn't want us to be slaves to the law, he wants us to be free to love. And the result of loving in this freedom is that we will do the things that we do out of love, and that changes everything. Then we understand why we do what we do. Ephesians 2 10 says this For we are God's handy work, masterpiece, other translations, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, righteousness is our purpose. When we seek God with desperation, like you'll do anything. I just, here's, here's the heart behind it. And I, can't, I don't have any words to explain it, I guess, but it's this whole idea of like, God, I'm so desperate for you. I'm so desperate to be connected with you. I want to do what you want me to do. I open my heart to you. I want to be aligned to you so that I can hear your voice and whatever it is that you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Now the assumption is that's going to be a miserable life, but it's not because you will begin to operate the way that God created you to operate. And the promise is that we will be fulfilled So the result of righteousness isn't slavery. It's actually freedom because we understand why we're here. And that's what this message is all about. And the promise is we will be fulfilled. I don't want us to ever get stuck in doing things and not understanding why we do them or not having our hearts into it. Like we're going to gain something from God or, or be in a right relationship with God as a result of the things that we do. No, he paid for everything. But he wants us to be a life that is fulfilled. And the only fulfillment that we're going to find is when we align ourselves with his will, hungering and thirsting for that. Desperation for God. So I'm going to end with this. In Psalm 19, one says this. I love this verse so much. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever noticed that? The heavens declare the glory of God. You look at the stars. I mean, have you ever had those moments when you're not that busy and you just can take a moment and breathe and just kind of look around to nature and like, man, the heavens declare the glory of God and you feel the wind and maybe you see a flower or something like that and then you realize that everything is worshiping God. The skies, it says, proclaim the work of his hands. I think about nature and I think about us. Because we're creations of God, and God created us for a purpose. Have you ever used something for a purpose for which it wasn't created? What happens? Like, you want to unscrew a screw and you use like a knife? And so what happens with the, with the knife? You do a terrible job. You can't really screw the screw right. You know, it's all wobbly, and then the knife breaks maybe. 
Why does it, why does it happen? Because that's not what the knife was created to do. That's not why it was created. And so when God creates everything, he creates everything with a purpose and for a purpose. And so when we look at nature and we look at the skies and we realize that, that a tree is being, a, is being fully a tree when it's giving fruit and it's declaring the glory of God, when we see a bird fly and, you know, doing its thing and we're like, man, that's just, it's, it's, that's what it was created for. And it's just doing its thing. We see a cloud or the ocean, we're like, that's creation of God and it's doing the thing that it was created to do and that glorifies God. It's fully in its purpose. You see, the same is true for you and me. We were created for righteousness, not self-righteousness, righteousness, being right with God, connected with God, fulfilling the purpose for which we were created for. Living the way we're supposed to live. And you feel and you'll be fulfilled. Have you ever asked, have you ever done, have you ever asked what, someone to forgive you? Like, oh, I don't know. I know it's the right thing, but I don't know if I should do it. And then you do it, and you're like, man, there's something in your heart that connects with the divine, and you're like, this is what I was created for. I want to live this way. Have you ever forgiven someone? Same thing. Have you ever done an act of generosity and just all these things. Have you ever hold the door for someone? And it's like, man, like this is, this is bigger than me. Like I'm part of something. I'm walking in my purpose. And this, this whole pursuit that is motivated by love will result in fulfillment and understanding this is what we were created for. There's nothing like doing something you were created for. Loving, helping, being generous, sacrificing, listening, giving of your time, and praying. And so I want to conclude with this thought. I want to, I want to give you all an opportunity to, in a very concrete way, be able to experience being fulfilled in a way that, at least in my opinion, cannot be compared to anything else where you can be loving, helping, being generous, sacrificing, listening, giving of your time. We're doing a mission trip to Ecuador. And I'm going to do a shameless plug for that mission right now. Because if there is anything, if there is one thing that I could choose that is fulfilling, it's mission trips. You see, I've been in different parts of the world, led mission trips, done different things, and there's always that sensation as you're doing it. It's like, man, everything that you do in every day, as you wake up in the morning and you do all the things during the day, you're like, man, I am connected to God and to his purpose. And one of the things that would happen at the end of these missions trips is we'd have like this circle and we'd talk about, you know, different things. And then we'd come back to the United States or back to Chile, depending on where we were going. And we would sort of unpack the trip and we'd talk about the trip. And we're like, man, I was just so evangelistic and I was just so on fire for God and all these things. And so my, my thought always, and this is I would share it, was like, how can we develop a mission field mindset every day? And so as you think about that, I want to talk just a little bit about our mission in Ecuador this year. It's at, in a, it's at a place called San Vicente. We're going to work with an organization that we've been working with for 15 years. We help them plant one of the churches. And I I'm really looking forward to meeting the guy that's in charge of all this because he has this project. He's going he's gonna to plant 30 churches. He's going to plant 100 churches in 30 years. I just love that. 
I mean, that gets me fired up just thinking about it. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to this. I want you to come to a meeting, an informational meeting. This is going to be on March 1st. That's not next week. It's the week after. Just come to the meeting. It's right after church. We're going to meet in the, in the cafe, I think. Well, I'll confirm that, but it's after church. And we're just going to inform you about what, what's going on. Don't feel like you have to commit nothing. Just come and listen and decide and pray to see if this is something that God wants you to do. Let's, um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and let's, um, let's have a moment of prayer. This, this moment is for you. This moment is for you. And just think about what you've heard. And let's, uh, let's align our hearts with God right now. And let's just ask him this question. Let's ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what is it, what is it that you're telling me today? And Holy Spirit, what, it is, what is it that you want me to do? Because maybe you're here and the whole idea of righteousness isn't even on your radar. Maybe you're thinking like, like I think sometimes, if Jesus achieved the righteousness for me, why should I even try to achieve it for myself? But today, maybe you understand that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And that now we do the things that we do because of love. And love is our motivator now, no longer guilt. And you've understood today maybe that, that you will be fulfilled when you pursue righteousness. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. And you understand now that it's all about love. But here's the thing. Maybe you're, you're sitting here and you're having a hard time having love as your motivator because you're just going through too much pain right now. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe there's injustice that has been done toward you. Maybe you've been victim of abuse. I don't know. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're just stressed and you can't even think about what we're talking about right now. And that's fine. That's fine. All I want to do is that if you're having a hard time with this right now, and you're overwhelmed, and you need for this to come into your heart, I just want to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to pray for you. Just raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Amen. 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 Lord God, I just want to, I want to thank you for this time that we shared, Lord, and I just want to recognize that, that sometimes we get confused and we don't understand, at least me this, is me, this is me talking right now. Sometimes I get confused and I just get busy and just doing all these things and, and we forget that you fulfilled all the law. But now we have a stronger motivator, which is love. And I pray that that will be the thing that moves us to do all the things that we do. And that as a result of this hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will find our purpose in our families, in our interactions. And that we'll discover that as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be fulfilled as we pursue the things that, that you've called us to do, that you've, that you've invited us to do, to be generous, to be helpful, to be loving, to do all these things that you will allow us to discover this way, this path toward righteousness not to achieve perfection because we never will, but this path of good works that you have laid out for us to walk in. I pray for all the hands that were raised, Lord. I feel like there's people here that are hurting bad. And I pray that you'll give them comfort and you'll give them love. I feel like some people here maybe are, feel so empty that they have nothing to give, Lord. And I just pray that you'll fill them with your love they'll give them sort of like a spiritual hug and that they'll realize that you're here right now, that you're with them and you love them and you will never leave them. 
We pray this, God, right now with all of our hearts, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.